Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. It's great to be back with you for another episode of the School of Travel's podcast. I ended up taking the month of October off due to a hectic travel schedule visiting family back in the U.S. and also losing one of my recorded interviews after not testing my mic after a software upgrade. Luckily, I have fixed my mic issue now and I've been able to sit down for more interviews now that I'm back in Lisbon. And I'm excited to bring you more episodes starting today with a very special interview with my current boyfriend, Lorenzo Primitera. Lorenzo has been a fan of my show for over a year now, since we started dating during the pandemic, and when he started listening, he told me that he wanted to wait for one year before going on my show. And now that year has passed, and I'm actually glad we waited, because in this past year, the big topic that we're going to cover in this episode, cryptocurrency, has changed dramatically. Lorenzo grew up in a medium-sized Italian town, one of these towns like so many of us grow up in where people don't really move too far afield after graduating from high school and attending a university nearby. But through studying abroad during university, Lorenzo had his eyes opened to the possibilities of how travel could change his life, and he eventually made travel his primary focus while working from the road. During the pandemic, Lorenzo also found time to focus again on the cryptocurrency industry after several years of not paying attention to it, and he found that cryptocurrency seemed like a better bet than ever for navigating the uncertainty of the pandemic and the excessive printing of money by national governments during that time. We will talk about Lorenzo's journey in this interview to becoming a digital nomad, as well as his new book, Hey Mom, I Bought Bitcoin!, which breaks down the cryptocurrency industry and its concepts in a simple way that even your mom can understand. If you've always wondered about crypto but never taken the time to look into it, this is the episode for you. Without further ado, here is my interview with Lorenzo. I'm excited for you guys to meet him. Welcome to episode 63 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I'm here with someone that I've been waiting to interview for one year because he told me, that's how long you have to wait. Uh, he's actually currently my boyfriend. So let's see how this conversation goes. Hello, Lorenzo. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, and thanks for inviting me one year ago. <laughs> You're welcome. And I know you've listened to a lot of episodes, so you are excited to be on this podcast. And I'm excited to share your story with listeners because you were a nomad before I was. And you have gone down this really interesting path, which we're going to talk about and we hope everybody can learn about today. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Lorenzo, I'm 33, and I've been a nomad for the last five years, and uh, working mainly as a programmer, but I have a lot of side hustle that I would like to share later on. Yeah, you're actually the first programmer that I can recall having, having on the show um, that was doing it as their main work, and you're a mobile developer, right? Yeah, I'm surprised I'm the first one because it's one of the most common jobs that you can find 
or among nomads? So I've had another programmer on here. Shout out to Kevin from episode 24, who we focused on Tinder dating with. Uh, that's a good episode, guys, if you want to go back and listen. But he does other things too, other side hustles. But you are developing mobile apps. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people can do this remotely. It's one of the most popular jobs that you find as a digital nomad. And really in demand. So a lot of companies are looking to hire and hire remote programmer because it's all about results and delivering good products. Okay, so can you tell the listeners where you're from and like what got you on this path of being a digital nomad? I'm originally from Italy and I also studied in the UK for a couple of years. But then I decided to go back to, to Italy because just Rome, my friends, it's where my life was. And... Um, yeah, I had like amazing years, the post-university years, where I started freelancing, basically. And from a pure egoistic point of view, it's just because I didn't like to work in an office. I like to schedule my own day. I like to wake up late, you know. It. Was this from childhood? Like, were you always a late riser? Like, oh, I, I don't like structure? I, of... I don't like structure. I just like to live without an alarm. And I know I can be more productive rather than knowing that I have to work from nine to six. So I had, when I was freelancing, I had long nights when I was working until four or five just because I was feeling inspired. And uh, yeah, I started uh, basically freelancing or having more stable contracts, but still on my terms. It was more difficult than just getting a programming job in a normal company, but once I got there, I know that it's what I wanted to do, not to have a structure and just also choose what I want to work with, what was motivating me more than just the salary. Did you work in a traditional company when you first got back to Rome? or I worked in a traditional company for six months between my undergraduate and my postgraduate because I had that spare time and, you know, you're supposed to start working. So I got that job for six months and they tried to renew me but I was like no my postgrad is more my master is more important so I was like that was an experience but I'm not sure I really liked it but that was your that was that like a nine to six experience yes yeah. how did that go for you in those six months uh not exactly what I wanted to <laughs> to have like yeah the, the job was cool but a lot of morning I was just feeling not inspired and sometimes I was feeling inspired in the evening but I wasn't paid so I wasn't gonna work how long was your commute at that time my commute was very short it was 10 minutes because I deliberately rented a place next to my job place because I'm like I'm not gonna wake up one hour earlier to go to your work that does help so much with work-life balance but as you mentioned like you you could be a lot more productive if you weren't working nine to six. And I don't think oh, this yeah. is obviously just for programmers who have to write code and really get it deep into the details. It's We've discovered in the pandemic, it's for most people. Yeah. You are not so productive when you're like, oh, you have to do this in between this time and this time, mostly because all of those meetings, right? I also worked in a traditional company after my postgrad, after going back to Rome. And basically what I told them, I can come to the office when I'm needed, but I mainly want to work from home. <laughs> what did they say to that? Um, well, that was after the third interview that they tried to hire me and they, at all costs. And I'm like, yeah, this is my condition. They accepted and they realized that I, at that point I was one of them and it was exactly what they wanted. Somebody who delivers, not somebody who talks. 
I have to stop you there and ask, like, how did you have the courage to tell your bosses that's what you would do? Those were your conditions, because so many people in the office are afraid of, like, getting out of the mold, telling their boss what they really wish they could do and the hours they really wish they could have. How did you have the courage It was mainly because it was the third interview. When every interview, they raised the salary they wanted to give me. So I thought, okay, here is me who has the control. At this point, I'll just try to go all in and say, these are my conditions, accept it or not. Okay, so you were like in Rome, you were getting into the freelance world. But I want to back up for just a a minute here, because I know you said you went to England and you lived there for a couple of years what program were you, what got you over to England, let's say? Because this is something we haven't talked about on the podcast, and it could be a way for a lot of people like you who are from smaller towns in Italy or smaller places that it's a way to like get on the traveling path, let's say. So one of the reasons why I really wanted to do the, the university was to go on the Erasmus here. And what is Erasmus? Because as an American, I, first of all, did not know what that was. Erasmus is one year where you study abroad in another university and you get your exam, like, recognized in your home university. It's mostly paid by the European Union. So now UK is not in that list anymore, unfortunately. But back then it was. So I chose a list of exams that I want to do abroad. I chose some university. And then based on the score and different criteria I got accepted in University of Leicester UK so it's a program you have to apply for yeah separately okay I applied as soon as I could so after six months into university I applied but I only went on my third year because of some exam recognition and stuff is that typical like most people will not go to Erasmus their first year most people will go on their second or third year okay. yeah you cannot go on your first year of course you need to start university first and get some exams and for me, it was the life-changing experience because you've been just thrown in a different country with a different language, with a different university system, new friends. And I was 20, 21 back then, so it was, it was life-changing. And it really opened my mind and really inspired me to travel more and just spend more time abroad. Was it difficult for you when you first got to England and how different everything was? Or did it feel just natural, like, I this is what I always wanted to do? It felt naturally there was kind of culture shock for food or whatever, but overall feel natural because if you bond more with people who are there on Erasmus as well, you don't bond a lot with locals because it's more about we are all in this together, we are all new in this new country, let's support each other. So you had a lot of friends and yeah. I guess you made more and more friends the longer you were in the program. Yeah, yeah. I was supposed to stay there for six months and then extend it to one year, two weeks after I arrived. Oh, nice. So you really, it really gelled with you. Yeah, it's a suggestion I give to everybody. If you're in university, just apply for Erasmus and do it. It could be the Erasmus you do in a country where you go and study the subject you are more interested to, or you just go to Spain and drink every night, but just do it because (laughs) it will really enrich your university experience. Yeah, I would say to anyone in university who has the chance or the option, like go for study abroad because it really can put you, it just opens your mind, like you said. And so, yes, thank you for sharing this program because a lot of Americans have never heard of it Mm. Um, or maybe people from outside of the EU. So that's great. I mean, the, the funding that the European Union was giving was not a lot, but I would say that for UK. But if you would have gone to Poland, for example, that would have been more than enough. So there's still some free money, I would say, that you get 
to do a new experience. I can also imagine how you got back to Rome after having that experience, and you were like, oh, "I can't live a traditional, structured yeah." Life when I, when I went job. back to Rome, my my only goal was to go back to UK to do my master. But then I discovered the nice side of Rome. I start organizing um, events and trips for Erasmus students there. So this would get me stuck in Rome and really loved it. And let's also talk about house hacking for a few minutes because it was in Rome, right? Yes. That you did house hacking. Can you explain what that is and what you did when you were there? Because I thought you're quite young to come up with that, you know, strategy well, for saving money. Real estate, renting in Rome, it's not cheap. So I was looking for a bigger apartment. I found one with five bedrooms and two of them, they were used as double bedroom with two beds. And it was not that expensive. So me and a friend, we rented out a full apartment, two months deposit. And then we were renting out to students who mainly were staying one year. One year means not the summer, but um, with the loss of the summer that usually the house was empty, we could, we could make up that loss by renting to people and then changing them. And September was mainly the, let's call it the Airbnb month, when we had students who were looking for houses. So they would rent for a week, look for a house, change, like short term. And then from October until July, it would be like Erasmus students who were staying there. It was kind of a busy house because we were between five and seven, but it was fun. It was definitely fun because it was a nice atmosphere, parking people, so it was fun. So house hacking is like you're covering the cost of your rent by these other people in the house. Yes. Renting the other I was rooms. almost living rent free or taking the risk if the house or one room would uh, be empty for a while. We've also met other nomads that, that like to do this as well. Um, they you just need out. to accept that you're going to live with a lot of people. Yes. Or they rent out like expensive places in expensive parts of the city, but they expect that they'll have people that will yeah. like, kind of like sublet the room and yeah, make up their rent and even make a profit. So that's another way, listeners, you can make money and um, not have to necessarily be tied to a location because you could get a friend to do it. You could have moved out and yeah, had a Yeah, even though friend. you probably want to do it yourself. Otherwise, the friends want to, to keep the whatever you're earning. Yeah, or like if you buy the property, let's say in the U.S., you want a very trusted friend to be mm. the person living in the house renting out to other people. Yeah, renting rooms instead of an entire apartment, it's more profitable, but it requires more management. Okay. So you're in Rome, you're freelancing. What happens next? Happens that uh, in 2016, I kind of got a feeling that my life was getting repetitive. I was having fun. I was really living the life, but getting repetitive and I felt the need of just changing what was around me. So at the end of one year, I just decided to, to pack, leave my flat and move to Malaga, Spain. Mainly because I love Spain. I had a lot of friends there. So I just decided why not? And Malaga was even cheaper than Rome. So that was for me, makes sense because I could keep saving money, living in a town that was more warm, and that was just an experiment that I went for three months and then I said, it doesn't make sense to stay three months. I'm going to stay one year. And it was during that year that I started hearing the term digital nomad. Uh, some videos on YouTube, a friend wrote a book about digital nomad and I was asking him because I saw a lot of pictures of him in Thailand. And I was asking, what's the digital nomad? And then it was 
he gave me his book and then he was telling me all the stuff that we know. And in that point, I realized I was already one because I was already on the road, I would say, I just moved out of my hometown and I was like, oh, okay, so the fact that I'm in Spain now and I can go to any other town next means I'm already remote, so I'm already a digital nomad. And then looking at this picture of Thailand, Bali, I was like, oh, that's fascinating. Especially because I've been to Thailand as a tourist one year before moving to, to Spain. And I was really fascinated about all of that. But I just thought that that's a destination when you go when you're like tourist or... Yeah, you don't think of living in Bali or think of living in Thailand for no. like months and months and months. I don't know why, but yeah, if you first go there as on a vacation, I guess you think it's too mm. far away. It's too exotic. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think about that. So, yeah, basically from that, it got into my head, this term digital nomad, and I started doing a lot of research, reading a lot, and and then eventually meeting when my journey, my digital nomad journey started meeting nomads. And what I realized, that most of the nomads, they decided they want to be a nomad. They start the journey, maybe volunteering in an hostel while learning a skill whatever was trying at the moment, and then try to make it as a digital nomad. In my experience, it was totally the opposite. Basically, I was already freelancing. I was already a nomad that didn't know about the nomad world, so I just started traveling because, well, I was already in Spain. I did six months around Europe, more fast traveling, and then was the turn of Asia. So I started this journey from the end, from being already remote and then discovering that I can actually travel. Nice. And so how was that when you got on the road and you were like fast traveling and was, trying to work at the same time? Yeah, it was very fast paced because FOMO was everywhere. Like one place, one island, three days. Okay, so the island, next one, next one. At the beginning, it's what you, what you feel like, oh, next, next until you get to a point that you probably want to explore more, stay longer, or chill more. And this is something a lot of the nomads face when they start, or anyone who's never had this lifestyle when they start it. Like, there's a lot of, like, FOMO at the beginning. Like, no, I need to get to this place. I need to get to that. I may never have the chance. And you move every week or two weeks. And when you're trying to work at the same time, it does get tiring very quickly. Mm. Yeah, it does. I had quite structured day. So I was able to move, to, to, to work, travel, but a lot of people, they just get lost in whatever they're doing. Yeah, and I, I would almost say, like, if you can, at the beginning, if take, take a few months off and travel exclusively when you start. Because that, looking back for me, that would have been really nice. Um, but from day one, as, as a digital nomad, for me, I was still doing the job that I'd already had as a freelancer. So, yeah. But okay, you, you went around Europe, and then how was Asia? Asia really what connected me with other nomads because there I met a lot of nomad community, Chiang Mai, uh, Kupangan, Bali, the hotspots. And I just, I love meeting other nomads. I love going to events and understanding what they were doing to survive, let's say, because I was a programmer. I felt pretty normal, like I'm doing this, it's a normal job, it's just remote, but discovering all this kind of way you can be remote. So it was interesting for me. I knew that for me, that was my skill, the programming, but it was also nice to see what other people were doing. 
Was that your first time to go to a co-working space as well? Yes, because I was mainly working from home, both in Rome and Malaga. So, but I was going to co-working spaces mainly to chat with people, to meet people, mm-hmm. because I can work everywhere, even from an airport. But the co-working, the fact I was paying for something, I was paying for a community, not for a desk. Yeah, and I know you got very inspired with different activities as well. Like when you were in Bali, you said you found a gym that was quite expensive compared to what nomads usually pay for gyms, but it was really inspiring you. Can you talk a little bit about this gym? Yeah, the gym was because a lot of nomads were going there to, to practice handstands. So that was something cool to do while traveling. And then, yeah, that was the moment where the nomad community was what was gluing me and my activity together. So you would do, you would do what all the nomads were doing, and travel with them and keep meeting them around the world. So, and inspiring each other because otherwise you're just a traveler or by yourself on the road, submitting your work, but you can feel lonely sometimes. Yeah. So like go to a gym every morning and like start to get really fit and push your body and do these handstands. And like you you said, they had like cold ice pools and like the jacuzzi and I'm like wow just the ability to this is one of the great things of being a nomad is you're there you're working but you have the ability during the same day to go to such a nice place like that whereas in your hometown let's say in Italy or America you might just be there and the gym down the street is not the gym you would choose for yourself but there it's it is. What, um, I would say it's what the typical Instagram follower would tell me oh you're just on holiday because I just post picture of a pool, you just on holiday one year, the entire year. I'm like, no, I'm actually working. It's what I post is the pool because it's next to the co-working. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing lifestyle to try out. I would encourage anyone to try this out and see how they do. Even if you have a family, there's ways to do it. But that's a, that's another episode, <laughs> listeners. In my in my perspective, you can also try to become remote and keep living in your town like I did for many years, and then move around because. Now, with the pandemic, everybody was remote in their own town. So if your company allows it, just keep being remote in your town, just work from your bedroom, whatever, and then leave and see what's the difference. See if you can be productive from wherever you're going. Could be even the, the town next door or the country, the closest country to yours. Yeah, you can definitely take baby steps to start into this lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and so I know in 2019, just looking back at your Instagram after I met you, because we met at the end of 2019 on the Nomad Cruise, which was a funny exactly. story. Yeah, it was funny because we didn't really know each other well on the cruise. We just kind of saw each other and said, introduced and said our names really is as far as I remember it, it going. But um, you traveled a lot in 2019, like very fast travel again. Um, and so it must have been quite a transition for you when the pandemic hit. 2018, 2019, yeah, they were the fastest traveling years. I was starting already to slow down. In fact, in 2018, I'd never been to a place more than a month. 2019, I started being in places for two, two months and a half. So I was starting already to slow down. And then 2020 was supposed to be a great year that then probably it wasn't, but it was because it actually gave a lot of us time to reflect on what we want to do, which kind of travel we want to do, how we want to spend our times. You went back with your family for a while. Yeah. Even. And Italy I, was not I, doing well in the pandemic. I knew, I knew I had to get stuck somewhere. So at that point, I just thought that 
would be a nice, nice time to spend with the family. And I think at that time, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. At that time, you started getting more, well, back into something that now I want to talk about. This is what I referenced at the beginning of the episode, listeners. It's something that I got into more, I would say, in, in 2020, but I was getting into it in 2018. But I want to hear your history of your experience with cryptocurrency. So because we were both, well, all of us were locked down and didn't have so much to do, there were really interesting things going on in 2020 in the financial markets. So mm -hmm. I want to hear about what happened with your journey with cryptocurrency. I guess the journey also started in 2019 when I started to get more into investing in general, knowing that just saving, saving, saving doesn't get me far. So researching investing and then also 2020, the big crash and the recover in the normal stock market. In, that was in March for people who were not, are not paying very close attention to like the financial markets. Middle of March 2020, the day that everything was shutting down around the world. I woke up and remember that the price of Bitcoin dropped 50% that, that day. People were at home, I would say, during 2020. So they had more time to study whatever they were interested in. In my case, one of the subjects was investing. And I've been in cryptocurrency for a while, but was 2020, especially summer 2020, that I really found a use case. I really found that there were a lot of people building cool stuff on blockchain that got me into it. And then I be basically become obsessed and I spend, you know, my days researching new projects, studying, it's a real study at the beginning, but I would say it's certainly not as difficult as people might perceive if they hear the term. Um, and it's also not a scam. Can you talk about like what cryptocurrency really is and like what your view of it? Like in every market, there are scams, but like in every market, there are people who are just getting in to try to get rich quick. And there are people who get in because they want to build something cool. That was the same thing as the internet at the beginning. There were some companies who were building nothing just to grab some money from the investor and some companies who were building Google, for example, or Amazon. So I compare the crypto industry now as the earliest day of internet. Yeah, there are some comp some crypto who, have been, who will do nothing in the future and some crypto are really building the future. And studying... It's the only way that can get you far in the long run because you really need to understand which problem are they trying to solve. Is it a real problem or they just made up to do a quick crash, cash grab? So in, in, my, in my experience, what I, was, what I was learning it was mainly about decentralized finance. DeFi, DeFi. As, as you'll hear that term in the cryptocurrency industry, DeFi. Because I finally found a really use case, like getting, uh, getting loans without waiting a bank to approve or uh, using my money to give loans to other people. And all of this is secured by a smart contract. There's a software that can be more or less secure depending on who coded it. But I saw some real use case in the, in the world and now there are more and more. This was the first thing that got me in love with this environment. I would say got again in love because I've been in space for a while. Yeah, I think what happened when I, when I would speak with people as I got more into the cryptocurrency industry. So I bought 
my first cryptocurrency at the top of the market in 2018, right before it crashed like 80% and just stayed down for a year and a half or whatever. Um, and I just thought like probably a lot of people do, oh, there's just these digital coins and you just buy them and they go up and down and you can lose all your money or you could make some money, but it's anyway, you just buy and sell these fake coins or whatever. But like, it's actually last summer, what they call the DeFi summer of 2020, it really, things really started to pick up with this decentralized finance, like you said. So what changed between just like having these projects that were having coins where you just buy and sell the coin or speculate, what changed between then and like, let's say 2017 to 2019, and then what happened with this DeFi summer? What's the difference between DeFi and like CeFi, which is centralized finance? Or Yes. I would start even earlier because... I mean, Bitcoin was created uh, more than 12 years ago, and we have been a lot of summer, uh, if you want to call it summer. So every couple of years, there is something that changed the narrative around it. At the beginning, it was just a game for nerds sending money. They were worthless. They go digital money, wee! They were basically worthless, so people were losing them because they, were no, they had no use case. Then there were some... Small websites starting as accepting them, but nothing really big. Then they were starting to be accepted on the dark web for people to buy drugs, but not only that. But so, okay, there was kind of being recognized as money, and this was back in 2013. 2017, there were the ICO mania where new companies would find a new way to raise money. What is, is the, an ICO? Uh, initial coin offering is uh, similar to when a um, company wants to get a quote in the stock market. So they were issuing a coin saying this is kind of a share of my company that we're going to build. If you want to invest early stage in my company, buy this coin. Uh, for most of them, didn't end up well because they raised so much money, but they didn't deliver. But this is the risk if you just invest in a company without doing your due diligence and you just throw money hoping to find the next Facebook, for example. But still, it, it evolved the environment because now there is a way to do a fundraising. Like, there were a lot of scam, a lot of companies didn't deliver, but there were some who really deliver a good product. So, people just learn that you need to do your research before investing in anything. And then... Fast forward to 2020, all the DeFi, just uh, a lot of projects, they're building decentralized version of what we have in the financial world now. So you can, I already talked about the loan, but you can also buy some uh, mirrored asset on the blockchain, like a stock or gold, like an asset that follow the price of the real world asset, but it's on the blockchain. So it cannot be stopped or it can be used as a collateral for a loan. And more now we're in this growth phase where more and more things are getting out. And what I'm saying is probably going to get old in one year. <laughs> so as I say, researching and not just jumping it and buying everything is the most important thing. Because, yeah, a lot of people are in this to get rich quick. They buy whatever is going up and some of them will get hurt. Some of them will make money. But when there would be a crash because, of course, whatever goes up too fast and can go down, 
if you bought something and you really believe in it, you're going to hold it. You don't care if it went down. If you bought something just because it was going up, then of course you're going to panic. But what was another great like step forward for me when I was looking at this cryptocurrency industry was around that DeFi summer of 2020. And I say DeFi summer because it was summer where things really started a, to a get... A lot of projects get launched during that summer. Yeah. Um, it, it's like now you could sign up to this... Like, well, you could just attach one of your digital wallets to a, like a, a software that could help you swap your coins from one coin to another. And you never gave any information. You didn't give like your name. You didn't give like your, your picture. A lot of these other exchanges, maybe people have heard of Coinbase, like they required what they call KYC, know your customer. And like you had to hook up your, your like send a picture of yourself, send a picture of yourself holding a passport and all of these things. But now there was a way to do a lot of financial transactions without even being like, without giving any information, still being anonymous. But like you said, things are on the blockchain. Everything is being recorded. You can go back and see the wallet and what it's doing. But that was, it was amazing that now I could buy, let's say I could buy Bitcoin. And because there's a limited supply of Bitcoin, you could like a lot of companies now want you to like lend your Bitcoin out, let's say to them where they can lend it to someone else, like a like acting kind of like a bank. But if you lend out your Bitcoin, you can get a percentage paid to you in Bitcoin, an annual percentage, like interest. You can receive interest on your coins. And that really didn't start happening until 2020. You, you, you said a lot of things, but basically, in summary, a lot of services of the traditional finance, you mentioned swapping coins, that's basically the forex market, swapping euro to dollar. Mm -hmm. Now you can do it without a centralized exchange. You just go to a decentralized and you swap your coin. How it works, it's complicated. Well, not that complicated, but if you're interested in the technology, research it. Or you can do lend and borrowing. Mm -hmm. If you have some Bitcoin or Ethereum that they're just there, you can just lend them to other people and gain some interest on that. Or if you need, for example, some Ethereum or some USD coin, you can borrow and then pay some interest. It will go to the other person. Same. How does it work? It's a software if you're interested in the uh, mechanics behind it, it's not extremely complicated to understand. This is not um, the case to talk about it now, but you don't even know how, for example, how Facebook works be behind uh, the closed source, while in this case, everything is open source. So you can really read the code and see how it works and see if it's secure or not. Yeah, I feel like cryptocurrency is really just an explosion of code that's being written and all these things, these codes that are being designed and packaged into products. And it's amazing what they can do. And it's Mo mostly people, they see just the coins and the growth in price compared to usually the US dollar. But what's been built now, it's a huge ecosystem. Not only what we say to replace the traditional finance with all the complication and the, the slowness that we know, but also replacing what we know call as Web 2.0. So all these massive corporations own our data, could be Facebook, Twitter, and try to decentralize everything, try to get uh, back to own our data and not give away everything that we have. And this is 
the revolution that Web 3.0 is bringing with the decentralization. So I'll say, yeah, study what it's about and not stop just that, that coin went up or went down. Yeah, thank you for sharing more about what this industry involves because, again, it's often a black box when people hear the word cryptocurrency. It just the brain switches off or they're just like, no, 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 that's a scam. So, yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still super young because it's been around for Bitcoin 12 years, but then if you think about everything else, it's been around probably for three years, so it's super young. And if you talk about internet in... Uh, early 90s, well, was even less known than crypto is now, so it's still super early. So you got so involved that by 2021, you started writing a book about crypto and about Bitcoin. What can you tell the listeners what you ended up writing? Well, I got inspired because you wrote a book, so I wanted to try this self-publishing journey. Shout out to the Shimo Kitazawa guide. I will put a link on the in the show notes, and I'm gonna as I will put a link to your book as well. So I wanted to write a book that was not non-technical. There was an experiment to write something not difficult, and I got the idea when I wanted to explain Bitcoin to my mother. So. I started drafting what I really want to talk about. And from the first draft, then I start writing like every day, every day. And the book is basically not technical at all. I just explain the history of the economy from the ancient age until today, how it evolved. And then from there, I connect the digital currency that we already have with our credit card because the money is already digital to Bitcoin why it was created, what are the problems with our society, and just going with why it could work and why it couldn't. So I'm not really, I'm biased, but the book is not. So I'm just giving um, the reader just a broader picture and a point for reflecting it about this future. And I'm proud to say that, yeah, my mom read it, my grandfather read it, so... And it was first published in Italian, but now yeah. you have the English version. English version, yes. What is the name of the English book? It's Hey Mom, I Bought Bitcoin. <laughs> I love that. And yeah, I do think it's a great introduction. I've read it too. And I think it's a great introduction to this world of cryptocurrency, starting, like you said, with the history of money. Um, because that, I think people say, like, how can this, how, and, and I'd like you to answer this, like, how can Bitcoin have value? I mean, now it's like, one Bitcoin is over 60,000. Yeah. Like, how is this possible? How does Bitcoin have value? Yeah, I guess studying the history of the economy since the super early days, it already put everything into perspective because how dollar has value, how gold has value. So how anything has value is because we give it value. Yeah. So people agree that it has value. Yeah. If, Something is rare, but nobody wants it. It doesn't have value. Yeah. So this is, as you said, like 12 years old, you know, now, and it's, it's catching on more and more and it's having more and more use cases. So more and more people are accepting, including this year, banks. Can you, can you talk about how the banks this year have the, really the banks, started The banks went from it? like, oh, Bitcoin is scam, Bitcoin is a bubble, to, oh, we should provide Bitcoin service to our users, to our clients. Oh, we should invest a portion of our money into 
into Bitcoin. So the narrative is changing. That all happened this year. It's incredible. Yeah. And yeah, also the price is changing, but I don't look at the price that closely. I probably prefer to look at the adoption. Like for me, the the news that El Salvador use, started using Bitcoin as a you know, national currency, that was more important than every price movement because that's the first actually country to use it as a currency. So this led a lot of um, politicians in the Latin America to think about them and say, maybe maybe this is a, this is a good way, especially with the hyperinflation in some countries. So. Yeah, it would give people a lot of freedom of like stabilizing the income they get and having it have well, keep its value if they could start using Bitcoin. And I think a lot of people don't realize that when they just hear the, the term cryptocurrency, they think, no, no, it's like it's fake, but it could really help a lot of people get out of some of the enslavement of the of this different countries and how they're manipulating prices. And just having a one or more uh, currency or like boardless that you can send from one side to the other world almost for free, that is not going to be stopped because we live in a world that is like privileged because we have like Revolut or this card that we can send money to our friend easily, but not everybody has all this privilege. In a lot of uh, parts in the world, the economy is controlled, the money is controlled, you cannot move it around. And even if you think, okay, I have all this cash in my mattress, that's losing value because your government is printing, printing more of yeah. it. Or, so it's, it's something that I think a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people are just saving their money. But if it's being saved, but the inflation or the manipulation of the government is playing with the price and the value of the money. It's you're losing money just by saving. And it's yeah, really sad. Saving, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, I think that's what we, one thing we connected on when we did meet after the cruise again in Portugal last year, we said, Oh, we've both been studying this. And I think it's yeah. a really important thing to share with listeners just as a, as an option for you, another way to earn passive income or even active income if you get really into the industry. Yeah, and participate to this revolution of finance and, and decentralization and just building a better world. Like you said before, I think just study it on your own if you're interested. Read Lorenzo's book. <laughs> and then also like YouTube has so many resources and that's free. That's yeah. I think an easy way to, for people to get in if they don't want to have. There's not actually that much literature on it, to be honest. Mm, no, there are some good books, but some of them are so repetitive. So I think an issue with the literature is that it's so it goes out of date so quickly. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> it's yeah. almost like YouTube is the quickest yeah, it, way. Even my book, uh, <laughs> written like a few months ago, sometimes I talk about the price that's already really old, but it's... It's good to learn also the history, how everything started. Yeah, start learning like who are who are the, where were the innovations, like who created what innovations. Another book that I like, for example, is The Infinite Machine from Camilla Russo that talks about the history of Ethereum, how this guy created Ethereum in this, in this house. Seems like the story of Apple in the garage, but this book is not going to go out of fashion because... Is something that happened. It's an historical book. And Ethereum, for people who don't know, is the, the number two coin at the moment. It was the, the programmable coin. Yes, it was coin. the first programmable coin. Um, 
And, and like you've said already, there's a whole lot more we could talk about with mm-hmm. cryptocurrency, but I know we've never talked about it on the podcast before. So I thought you'd be perfect to introduce this to people if they've never considered or gotten deeper with it. But I hope that they can get, hey, mom, I bought Bitcoin and share it with their moms as well. So now that we're starting to open up, like finally we can start to travel again. What's next for you? Next is Argentina, mainly to see a country that's been destroyed by hyperinflation. Also, it's a country I've never been. So, yeah, here we go, Argentina. Yeah, like you're going like the second week of November, yes. right? I'm planning to. There's, there's actually an event that we're going to go to for the nomads as well, which is a couple of days. But I, I love Argentina myself. I'm excited to introduce it to you and we've already found um, a tour that's ex- like introducing Bitcoin to people while taking them around the city. So yeah, probably I, they, they need Bitcoin, they need crypto there. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I can't wait to see how the black market and the currency there because I heard so much. Well, thanks for coming on to the show, Lorenzo, and thank you for being a part of my life. Well, thanks for being a part of mine and being my inspiration every day. Thank you again, Lorenzo, for finally coming on the podcast and sharing your story of living an unconventional life on your own terms, and also for introducing us for the first time on the podcast to the cryptocurrency industry and how you can earn interest on your crypto or even take out a loan on crypto that you already have with no need for a bank to approve you or have your credit score checked or anything like that first. Just with a click of a button, you can get a loan and still hold on to your crypto. So cool, right? I'm going to put the link to Lorenzo's book on our website at theschooloftravels.com, and it is now available in both Italian and English. If you want to learn more about the history of the cryptocurrency industry and how it works, it is a fantastic introduction for you and your family members who have still never looked into it. Based on my own experience with crypto, I can tell you, this industry is only going to grow, so the sooner you learn about it, the better. Keep that in mind, listeners. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world, living in this bird.